Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Saints and Society. I'm Brad Leibel and I'm here with Rick Reeves. And we're continuing a series that we started in season one on alcohol. So if you haven't listened to the first one, we recommend you go back and listen to that. We talk about the Christology of wine and the theological implications of wine and alcohol in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, his atonement, and all that good stuff. So today we're going to pick up that conversation and talk about how we can enjoy the gift of alcohol and the freedom we have in Christ without crossing the line into sin. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Uh, Let's dive into it. This is Saints in Society, a podcast with an aim and focus on equipping saints to live in and engage with their society. With help from experts and through diving into the word, we seek to learn how to engage culture in its terms, but not of it. We believe the gospel speaks to all areas of life and provides the answers we are looking for. So we aim to equip saints with applying the gospel to our lives, living as saints in society. Alrighty, Rick, here is my question for you on this episode. If you could start your own podcast that wasn't called Saints in Society and wasn't about saints living in society, it could be about anything, a podcast uh, that you could do, what would it be about? My podcast would be about, I, I have a book idea, Okay, but I'm kind of afraid to say it because I don't want someone to s- swipe my book idea, Oh, but I'll say it anyways. Don't, don't give the ending. Oh, well, I feel like someone could just create their own ending. (laughs) I would want to do something after what Luther kind of did on spiting the devil and and specifically on ways that we can spite the devil through joy, through laughter, through the freedom that we have in Christ, through looking at Christ more and what it is to have joy and celebration in a life where there's anxiety and depression and stuff like that. So ways that we can spite the devil to the glory of God. Uh, so mm-hmm. that'd be something, or I, I've, I've mentioned this before, just heckling mm-hmm. an entire time and something about like hunting. Okay. So hunting stories, heckling. You could do a roast podcast and you could have, your, I would really like have that, guests yeah. come on and you, <laughs> they just go, sit there and you roast them. Guests really want, but I kind of like it when people roast me back. And so I'd want it to be a back oh, and forth yeah, thing. Yeah. 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 Okay. Honestly, I, I could, you want me to do it to you? I, I think I've got probably three and a half hours worth of material right now. Right now. <laughs> sure. Yeah. We've been trying to shrink these podcasts down in time. So let's just uh, go for the roast. I watched, uh, never mind. That's an embarrassing story. I have to say it now, Jenna and I watched the Jonas Brothers family roast last night on Netflix. Oh yeah. It was pretty funny. Uh, Pete Davidson roasts them and it's pretty good, but I like Let's roasts. Check it out. Uh, you could combine your podcast ideas and you could do spiting the devil and you could also roast the devil so you oh, could good, talk yeah. about ways that you could spite him and then also yeah, roast him that's good but, what about you uh the third thing you said is probably something i would do i love telling and hearing hunting stories successful ones unsuccessful ones funny ones crazy ones i just think there's there's stories to be heard and told from uh chasing animals in the woods we have plenty of stories But I find that there's a very specific group of people that actually enjoys listening to hunting stories in all of their glory with full detail. It's very hard to find those people. And so I I find myself telling too many details and stories that I get really excited about and people are just checked out. So I want to be able to tell those stories. To your audience of four. Yeah, with passion, (laughs) even if it's just you. (laughs) I want to be able to. to, I want to make your dreams come true. Okay. So what if we start off our next podcast with you getting to share one of your favorite hunting stories? I don't know if we'd have time. 
Okay. Can <laughs> That's you part condense of the problem, it down to like two uh, minutes? I'll think about it. Okay. Yeah. Sounds yeah. good. Cool. Well, uh, on that note, we're not doing a podcast on any of those things today. <laughs> today, Well, we're going to kind of talk about spiting the devil. Uh, yeah. We're going to talk about alcohol. And uh, we started this series last season, talked about the Christology of wine and how wine is used symbolically throughout scripture to talk about the blood of Christ. And so there's there's some theological implications of, of wine and alcohol. And that then begs the question that I think we're going to pick up today is should saints drink? Should Christians partake in alcohol? If there's theological significance, we can say yes. But then there's also biblical warnings about drunkenness and being controlled by by wine and alcohol. And so is there a line? Where is that line? And we're going to do that by looking at some scripture. We're going to look at some views of alcohol throughout church history and try to land somewhere on how Christians should engage with this gift of alcohol. So where do you want to kick us off, Rick? Uh, thanks for asking, Brad. <laughs> You're welcome. I think, well, let me kick off by saying this. We love to joke and have a good time and goof off. But there's also a level, when you talk about stuff like alcohol, to where there's people listening that are battling with this, struggling with this. They've grown up in households with people that have struggled mm-hmm. with this, or they're married to someone who's struggling with this. And so I, I want to say that, I think you've said this well in the past, don't take our laughter or our playfulness as not taking uh, a serious stance on something like mm-hmm. that. And and there's nothing here where we want to lead people into sin or lead people to struggle or do something like that. So I think we do feel the gravity of making these podcasts knowing mm-hmm. people listen. And the problem with that is people choose to let their pastor be the Holy Spirit inside of them instead of letting the Holy Spirit uh, grieve them, convict them, but also don't go against your conscience right. based upon something we say today, like be sensitive to the spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everyone wants their pastor to give them permission. Hey, tell me how much I can drink. How many drinks publicly can I go out? Can I have, can I drink and all that? Please give me a number and I'll abide by your number. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're not going to do that right. today. And so, yeah, I would start there to just be pastoral and sensitive to the people that have gone through this. But where I would also start is this, we don't formulate thoughts on subject matter like alcohol and stuff like this just off of our own opinions we're both young guys who aren't experts on everything and so or anything (laughs) or anything (laughs) and so we go to scripture and we see what scripture has to say and we don't let our culture read into scripture we let scripture read into our culture Mm -hmm. and into our society sadly on the topic of alcohol i believe that we have been so shaped by our cultural influence that I'm not even sure that we're listening to scripture, letting scripture mm. speak. And so I would say that not only does scripture give us permission to drink alcohol in the Lord's Supper, it's something that we're commanded to do in remembrance and and, and as a memorial mm-hmm. of Christ, but it also gives us permission to drink alcohol in such a way that gladdens our heart and to be enjoyed for pleasure. And mm. I think that's a different thing. And so let's start with scripture Okay, and, and I'll read some passages. Yeah. First one is Psalm 104, 15. It's talking about God here. And he gives wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So right there, you have wine to gladden the heart of men as a gift of God. Judges 9.13 says, but the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? So it's not only that it gladdens men, but it also cheers and gladdens God. Ecclesiastes 10.19 said, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Proverbs 31, six through seven, which I think is incredible because it's actually talking about 
this gift. And so nowadays we have morphine and stuff like that for when people are going through when they're on bed rest. What mm -hmm. is it that I'm hospice? Hospice. There we okay. go. So so we have morphine. We have medications to to help people through the pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. Listen to this. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So I, I even here on hard days, like I, I don't believe necessarily that like we just always run to alcohol or something like that. But there are times when you're in bitter distress. There are times where you're just having a hard day. And my wife and I do that and we enjoy a good drink together. And there is something about, I think, the blessing of something that is joyful, that gladdens, that cheers your heart that God has given in the midst of hard season and hard days to go, man, what a good gift, you mm -hmm. know? And so we have permission here, even in scripture, when we're going to those times to, to enjoy something like this. Yeah. So Ecclesiastes 9, 7 says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved of what you do. We can go into the New Testament for Timothy 4, 4 says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Mm -hmm. So. I believe that every act of eating and drinking in the Christian life is an act of worship. And so every meal that we have, every drink that we take, and you know this, our elders, my family, we will toast, have a glass of whiskey to the king, recognizing that we believe that we can drink good whiskey to the glory of God mm -hmm. and toast to the king. And th there's a passage I think that you have mm -hmm. in, in First Timothy. I think this is a passage that you could, this could be your, your everyday meal blessing that your family learns how to pray. This is something, this is where this comes from when we toast to the king, but it's in First Timothy. I'll, I'll let you read it. Yeah, First Timothy 1, 17 says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Yeah. And so whatever we eat or drink, it's to the king of the ages. It's to God in worship. It's this act of praise. Every meal, everything like that. We, we as First Corinthians 10, 31 says, we eat or drink whatever we do fully, completely to the glory of God. And so we can't get around that. The question is, is for your conscience, maybe, can you have a drink and say, thank you, God, for this gift and for the glory of God? Maybe you've heard the story of the young man who was in uh, Spurgeon's pastor school and Spurgeon was smoking a cigar. He loved cigars and, and he loved beer. And the young man goes, hey, you can't smoke a cigar. And Spurgeon goes, young man, can you smoke a cigar to the glory of God? And, and the young guy goes, absolutely not. And then Spurgeon goes, well, then you shouldn't smoke a cigar, but I can. Mm -hmm. And so even in that is if your conscience isn't clear, then don't do something. And I think, well, I'll read one more passage because I think it's the most like vivid picture that not only are we given permission to drink, but it's, we can do so even strong drink in an act of complete worship to God. And it's uh, Deuteronomy 14, 26. So Essentially, what they're commanded to do is, is, is uh, uh, take some things, sell them, then take the money and go buy something to do as an act of worship for God. So here it is. Spend the money for whatever you desire. Again, this is Deuteronomy 14, 26. Spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep, wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat it there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So you want to, you want lamb chops, you want some good meat, you want some good drinks, you have permission by God to do this and do this as an act of mm -hmm. worship. So that's where I would start. Not only do we have permission to drink, but we, we have permission to drink strong drink. We have permission to drink, not just for medicinal reasons, as Paul instructed Timothy for his stomach, but we have permission to drink 
as an act that makes our heart glad and rejoice and merry. Mm-hmm. So I think there, uh, it, the passages in Nehemiah that uh, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Mm-hmm. And so some people say the way that we're reminded of the joy of the Lord is even through a glass of wine that gladdens the heart. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, can I throw maybe a couple pushbacks? Fire away. To you that uh, I've heard, uh, maybe you've heard as well. The first one is more of like a historical argument um, that I've heard you guys make. I believe this is part of John MacArthur's argument against alcohol, that the type of alcohol they had back then would have been, he he has a very specific alcohol percent, which I don't know how he gets that, um, but it would have been very low alcohol content. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the 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 wine, the drink, the the alcohol that they would have had, they don't have the, they didn't have the t- technology back then to create uh, the types of alcohol we have today with a really high alcohol content. And so, what would you say in response to that? That I think MacArthur's right on a lot of things, and I think he's wrong on that. Ooh, burn MacArthur! Yeah, and uh, <laughs> like he'll ever listen to this. Uh, yeah, like he's tuning in. I'm like, I like my odds one on one against MacArthur. Uh, well, in a <laughs> theological debate or a no? Fight? Oh, okay, not a theological debate. I'm not an idiot. <laughs> in a fight, yeah, okay. a, a real man thing, Brad. Uh-huh, yeah. uh, <laughs> okay, so my my problem with that and his other argument, which we'll get to in a second, is throughout all of the Bible, we're seeing that there's times, I mean, Moses got off the ship. Noah. Noah. Thank you. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Moses got this off is the why ship I'm too. not going to go head to head with my <laughs> yeah. uh, Noah gets off the ship, builds a vineyard, gets drunk. Yeah. Apparently he knew how to make wine mm-hmm. that got him drunk. Yeah. What was it? Wine that, that is according to MacArthur's, you know, standard two point, th- this is it 2.25 or 2.75. He says it was somewhere in that range. I don't know where he got that, but th- there's too many passages in the old and new Testament that are referring to drunkenness. Mm-hmm. And, and so I believe that that's just a, a I don't know, like a erroneous argument to yeah. make that it wasn't strong enough because they're urging against drunkenness. Or y- even if that's the case, and we've talked about this, then you just go for quantity. Right. So even if it's 2.25, or even if it's a Coors Light, then you just start drinking a lot more of them, mm-hmm. you know? And, mm-hmm. and so I, I just don't think that's a good argument. His other argument is that it's a hindrance to the testimony of Jesus Christ for believers to drink. Okay. Like a missional yeah. evangelistic hindrance. No. Yeah. Which I struggle with that too, because Jesus was called a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus drank. He went to the wedding at Cana and he turned water into wine. Mm-hmm. Um, people are like, well, it was it was basically, you know, it was because they didn't have clean water and it was same thing. It was very low alcohol content. Well, Jesus could have just turned it into purified water, <laughs> you know, but he didn't. Right. He socially drank. And I don't believe in any way that Jesus was a hindrance to the testimony of the glory of God. He lived it out perfectly. Right. And so I, I don't know how that would be a hindrance to the testimony of the glory of God. I, I think many things could be a hindrance right. if you want to take that approach. But I also think it could be a hindrance to not take right. alcohol in a social setting. Like you, you're you invited to some non-Christian houses or to, to their house and they're like, hey, would you like a beer, a Super Bowl party, something like that? And you're like, nah, I think that could create a barrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you've talked about uh, um, drinking as a social lubricant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do, do, do you want to explain a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, I think one benefit of drinking can be yeah, it can serve as a social lubricant. So what that phrase means is that it can break down some barriers that might exist in relationships or in social settings that yeah. allow people to be maybe a little more themselves. And obviously this can be taken too far, right? One of the reasons I think people do pursue drunkenness 
or use alcohol in an unhealthy way is to be accepted by the the community around them. And so I think this can be taken too far. But with wisdom, I think alcohol can be used as a way to uh, liven conversation. And I mean, just from personal experience, I I find that I tend to be a little more myself and uh, engaging in social settings if I've had a drink. Um, yeah, so I so I think I think there's there can be benefit in the context of Christian community, but also uh, in in like an evangelistic or missional relationship as well. You, I think you could argue against MacArthur the exact opposite. That it's not a hindrance, but it can be actually a help to the yeah, Christian witness. Yeah, that's a good perspective. Um, that I think, I think that we have the freedom to engage in this. Yeah, and yeah, enjoy it, this. That can really quickly become like a self-righteous thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're at a Super Bowl party. Oh no, no, I'm not. I'm not going to have a beer. Mm-hmm. Which, if if that's your conviction, that's your conscience. That's fine. But if it's out of this like holier than thou kind of attitude, then I think that can even become a hindrance. Christians don't have to work too hard to like already be seen differently, you know? Mm-hmm. And so this is one way that we could uh, maybe be a little bit more like the, our non-believing friends and, yeah. and people that, that could be a, a door into a conversation yeah. about why we have the freedom in Christ to enjoy yeah. a drink. So, And you even said like, like loosen you up in conversation, but even for a date night, again, going back to a stressful season with like, you know, you're married, but stressful season with your wife, with children, with stuff like that. Like it, it's, it's a blessing to go out and get to have a drink mm-hmm. and, and even loosen up and relax and laugh and have yeah. fun with your wife. It's yeah. yeah. And Ecclesiastes even gives permission to that. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, go, go and do this. Life is short, you mm-hmm. know? And so, yeah, I, I think again, not only permission to drink, but permission to drink and be married, to have a gladdened heart, to enjoy pleasure. Again, we're not Buddhists trying to reach a state of nirvana and deny all pleasures in this life. We would say that pleasures are actually a good thing. In fact, so so much of scripture is engaging our senses to mm-hmm. to taste and 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 smell the aroma of Christ or taste and see that the Lord is good. One of the ways that we can taste and see that the Lord is good is through the gifts that he's given mm-hmm. that are good, even through an alcoholic beverage to be like, man, this is really good. It glads the heart. This is just a glimpse and a sliver of how much the gospel gladdens the heart and brings joy to my life. Yeah. This meal, as I bite into this delicious steak, like this is good. And it's just mm-hmm. a reminder that God is good and he's provided through his provisional care. Yeah. Like as I smell this, I'm, I'm reminded of the aroma of Christ that was a satisfying smell to God. And that in my life is now hidden in him that I'm a pleasing aroma to God and Christ. Like all mm-hmm. these things. I mean, that's what communion is. It's this memorial act. I've heard it said that uh, the secular world drinks to forget, Christians drink to remember. Mm-hmm. That's what the Israelites did for years, remembering the Exodus story. Well, Christ was showing when he was leading his disciples in communion, he was saying like, like, I'm the ultimate fulfillment. I'm the ultimate exodus. I'm the ultimate redemption. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm the ultimate one who's delivering you. And when we remember this act on Sundays, what, what we're doing is engaging our senses. Mm-hmm. Like you drink wine because you go, oh yeah, this gladdens the heart, the gospel ultimately and the blood of Christ glads my heart. Like you take the bread and you're remembering that Christ is the one who can satisfy our greatest mm-hmm. hunger and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in Revelation, there's all kinds of imagery. One of the imageries used to describe the the moment when Christ and his bride are united, right? When sin is judged and death is judged and there's oh, a yeah. new heavens and a new earth. What is it? It's a marriage feast. It's mm-hmm. a marriage supper. Like yeah. it's a party with a 
huge meal and like that's going to be the best wine oh ever. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's like the 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 scene that is used to describe the culmination of the entire storyline of scripture the reconciliation of all things yeah. back to god is this feast and so when we have feasts when we enjoy good food and good drink it's an opportunity for us to look forward to the day when all things will be made new and we will enjoy this marriage supper this marriage yeah. feast with with our groom and i think that's what the wedding at canaan maybe we talked about this last time but i believe that's what christ is even looking to yeah. is, is that wedding feast with his bride because again he turns wine in abundance and it's free mm-hmm. that's just a picture of his blood and of the gospel is like this it, it's this lavish, abundant, free gift that he gives, that gives us joy. And like, so he used wine as a picture of his blood that ultimately does that. So, yeah. yeah. This episode of the Local Business Spotlight is Cold Fire Brewing. It is a small craft brewery located on Mill Street here in Eugene. Cold Fire is motivated by European brewing traditions and inspired by a Northwest aesthetic Uh, with ingredients it has to offer. Because of this influence, they try to brew small batches so that they can refine their art as generations of brewers did before them. Cold Fire Brewing was funded in 2015 by Dan and Stephen Hughes, who had homebrewed together since 2001 as a way to obtain good beer cheap. Stephen had years of clinical laboratory experience as a scientist for a regional hospital system, which gave him an edge on the microbiology side of brewing. He even interned at some other breweries. Dan spent time in healthcare as well, but on the management side of things. They eventually decided they would go into business together, and as a result, Cold Fire was born. Every day, they continue to be humbled by the opportunity to share their craft with others. The name Cold Fire comes from the process of fermentation itself. Fermentation has been called Cold Fire because, similar to heating raw ingredients to create edible food, fermentation uses microbes to break down raw ingredients and enrich the drink for consumption. When you visit Cold Fire, you'll find food trucks, great beer, uh, and maybe one of the events they hold like an open mic night, cribbage tournament, trivia, and small concerts. You can even join their membership program as a way to receive discounts, benefits, and special private member events throughout the year. It is an invitation for fans of Cold Fire to get an insider view of their beers and the brewery. Go on and check out our friends at Cold Fire. Say hi to Dan and Steve and let them know that you heard about them on Saints and Society. I was gonna say let's let's move on to another uh, another pushback and maybe we'll cover this one quickly so mm-hmm. we can get into some church history. Yeah. So end of Romans twelve or yeah end of Romans and we talked about this just briefly. You touched on it a little bit earlier. One pushback to this could be uh, the stumbling block argument, right? Mm-hmm. If you have and we mentioned this earlier, if you're someone who does struggle or know someone who struggles with uh, with alcohol and you're around those people, then it. Good question. Is wise to abstain and to not put a stumbling block before someone. So if if we need to be cautious about putting stumbling blocks before our brothers and sisters in Christ, is it not just best to abstain completely so that we never uh, yeah, cause someone to sin that we might not be aware of the situation they're going through? Great question. So what I would say first is when Paul is addressing that to the church in Rome, he is dubbing the person who doesn't drink as the weaker brother. So, so I, I don't, I don't read that in a positive way that there is a stronger and a weaker and the stronger is actually the one who knows the freedom that they have in Christ to enjoy Mm -hmm. food and beverages. Mm -hmm. So I would start there. I would say that we should at all costs and at all times be willing to lay down whatever freedoms we have to Mm -hmm. not cause someone to stumble. But I don't think that's primarily about offending a religious 
pharisaical legalistic person Mm -hmm. who thinks that this is bad or this is wrong. Mm -hmm. I think it's like being around people that by seeing this or by indulging in this or engaging in this could actually lead them to drunkenness, could have an impact on their families and stuff like that. But just to be honest, we at GCC, at our church family, will have alcohol at volunteer appreciations. We'll have it at gospel communities and stuff like that. And and people are like, well, this is kind of weird, but I'm like, is there a safer place and a better place for Christians to enjoy this gift that they have by God than in the safety of accountability? Mm -hmm. I think part of us being more of an, you know, wanting just our autonomy and our, you know, just being individual and, and the way that's been produced in our culture is, is that let's just drink in isolation in our home. I'm like, let's drink in Christian community where mm-hmm. we can hold each other accountable. Where, yeah. But with that said, when I know people have had a pastor struggle, and I know you've been in on these conversations with me, I ask them, I'm like, hey, we were going to have alcohol at this event. Is that something that's going to be a, a stumbling block for you? Is that something that's going to struggle or make you struggle? For the most part, everyone who I've asked and engage, engage in those conversations, that's discipleship too. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just avoiding those conversations, being like, hey, everyone, let's tuck the alcohol away because so-and-so's here. It's like, let's actually talk to them and see yeah. where they're at. Yeah. Everyone has said, please don't put it away on account of me because I want other people to enjoy themselves. And that would make me feel really mm-hmm. weird if people did that. And, and the one gentleman that we talked to, you can even say what he said because I thought his response was really good. Yeah, I thought it was really wise and helpful that that no, no other place in his life is going to like ask him if they can put the alcohol away. And so mm-hmm. for, for his growth and learning how he's going to, in a healthy and, and God glorifying way, engage with alcohol, he's not going to be coddled in a sense in any other place. You're not going to go to the grocery store. Yeah, you're not going to go to the grocery store and they're going to cover up, you know, the, the beer section. You're not going to go to an Italian restaurant and they're going to put away the bottles of wine. Like mm-hmm. he's going to come into contact with alcohol in a variety of places outside of the church. And so I think one way that we can actually help our brothers or sisters who struggle with this thing is to yeah help them know how to navigate with self-control scenarios where there's going to be alcohol in the safety of the church community like you're talking about. Yeah. Um, okay, let's uh, let's move in now. So I, I think we, at least our position is <laughs> clear that we think that is permissible and even a good thing to drink alcohol for, to the glory of God in a way that gladdens the heart. But we would also say Scripture speaks against drunkenness. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes, and this is a question everyone wants to know when it comes to sin, is where is the line? So where is the line where you move from a gladdened heart to drunkenness? And to this, I think we can look to church history for at least some, yeah. some wisdom and where people have drawn that line in the past. Yeah. And again, I think scripture draws a line. So, so what about, and I'd be curious to know what, what you'd have to mm-hmm. say this, like modern terminology, like, is it sinful for Christians to be buzzed? Is it sinful for Christians to be tipsy? Because those are common words that people use mm-hmm. to essentially say, I'm not drunk. Are they saying that my heart is gladdened? Are they saying <laughs> that my heart is very merry? Yeah. You know, what yeah. exactly is being communicated? But, but I'll go to your drunkenness yeah. first. Let's look at L- Luther's mm-hmm. definition, okay? Martin? Yeah. He, he, he has a very loose definition of drunkenness. He says, drunkenness is when the tongue walks on stilts and reason goes forward under a half sail. And so essentially Luther's view is that when you start slurring your words and are, and, and, and your reason goes out the window, mm-hmm. that's when drunkenness mm-hmm. takes place. And, and what I would say is when you're no longer led by the spirit and sober minded, that's when drunkenness takes place because mm-hmm. you, you, you aren't able to communicate in such a way to where the spirit is governing and leading your life and, and to where you're making rational decisions. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's where I would draw the line. But okay. I think Luther would draw it a little bit further in the other direction. I know there's other people. Uh, in, in fact, there's 
I mean, Christians from like the Puritan era who would draw the line that when you can't get up off the floor or when you can't continue to drink, that's the level of drunkenness. And so again, this line has been drawn in different places in in different cultures, in different parts of the world at different times. This is where I'm drawing the line. And I think drawing the line from my own conscience. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not going to say this is where it should be for you or for someone, but I do think we have scriptural command to be, I don't think I know we do, to be sober minded, Mm -hmm. um, to be led by the spirit. So that's what I would say. And self-controlled. There's a self-controlled. Yeah. There, there's probably there's probably an aspect to it of can you stop? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like you know, and if if you cannot stop, then that's like a self-control issue, which I think plays a part in it as well. Yeah. But yeah, no matter what, there's people typically that's going to be on both sides of us saying, mm-hmm. uh-uh. Like people are going to listen to this. Some people are being like, well, edgy, liberal, and it's like <laughs> you. Do you know us? Like, like, yeah. like we take our Bible so serious and, and want it to be the governing authority of every area of our life, but we also want it to draw the lines. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and in all these cases, people draw the lines where they do. The problem is, is that where I've drawn the line and where, you know, families drawn the line doesn't mean that you have to adhere to where we've drawn the line, you right. know? Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's where it gets difficult. There's people going to say that we're far too conservative. There's people going to say that we're far too liberal. So, yeah. but Let's look at some other church history. Yeah. Let's look at Luther. Okay. Again, I'm not saying that I agree with this quote, but let's just kind of look at Luther's stance. So he wrote this to his friend, Jerome Weller. Luther's a man who struggled greatly with depression. Uh, His friend was uh, battling this. And so Luther wrote a lot about what it is to spite the devil. Like he wanted to spite the devil. Mm -hmm. And part of the way he's like, I'm going to spite the devil through laughter, through joy, through drinking, through having fun. And so he wrote this to Jerome. He said, be strong and cheerful and cast out all of those uh, monstrous thoughts. Whenever the devil harasses you, seek the company of men and drink more or joke and talk nonsense and do some other merry thing. Sometimes we must drink more, sport, recreate ourselves, aye, and even sin a little to spite the devil so that we leave him no place for troubling our conscience with trifles. We are conquered if we try to not sin at all. So when the devil says to you, do not drink, answer him, I will drink and, and, and I'll do so freely just because you tell me not to. One must always do what Satan forbids. Again, I don't agree with let's sin and, and sin despite the devil. Yeah. I, I disagree with Luther on that. I don't know for sure what he meant by that. Maybe sinning against Satan in, in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. But what he's saying is that there's an aspect where Satan wants you to be down. Scripture commands joy. It, you know, Paul says mm-hmm. rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And so we're commanded to be joyful. Satan wants us to be down. He wants us to be mopey. He wants us to, he wants life to be miserable for Christians. And so Luther was like, no, you know, laughter, joy. I mean, I listen to stand up comedy. I, I think laughter is medicine. Mm-hmm. I, I think these things are medicine. And so I think what he is saying is you're focused so much on yourself. Remember the good God who's given you good gifts. Enjoy those gifts despite the devil. Mm. So, so that's Luther. And people are like, what about Calvin? He, he seems a little bit more, you mm-hmm. know, stable and sober-minded. <laughs> this is what Calvin says, and, and this is in the Institutes of Christian Religion. He says, we are nowhere forbidden to laugh or to be satisfied with food or to be delighted with music or to drink wine. He says, it is permissible to use wine not only for necessity, but also to make us merry. But here's his kind of caveat. He says, first, it must be moderate, lest man forget themselves and drown their senses and destroy their strength. His second consideration may surprise the ignorant and even shock the very religious. He said he argued that in making merry, those who enjoy wine feel a livelier gratitude to God. So Calvin's also adamant about wine being used for communion. So mm. then one could say, what about the Puritans? Mm. 
who strove for purity. Well, let's read this about Richard Baxter. So Richard Baxter spoke about remedies that mitigated his physical pains so that he was able effectively to carry on his ministry. Of these remedies, he spoke about temperance with respect to food, exercise, intrinsic heat by a great fire, and beer as hot as his throat can endure, drunk at all once to make me sweat. He wrote, these are the means which God has given me to draw out my life with ease. There's Richard Baxter. He chugs a hot beer to... Yeah, it was called like a flap dragon or something like that. Flap dragon. Yeah. Cool. You should order one and see <laughs> if I... what they deliver you. <laughs> <laughs> so another example is just with the Puritans is Bruce Daniels writes this. During the Puritan uh, era, alcohol was served at virtually all functions, including ordinations, funerals, and regular Sabbath meals. Beer was the most popular drink, although fermented cider eventually overtook it. He writes that cider was easier to press than beer was to brew. New Englanders also preferred its taste and thought it was healthier, particularly for women and children. So For the children. Yes. And then we have John and Charles Wesley's mom. So her name is Suzanne Wesley. Mm -hmm. So here's the Methodist boy's mom, right? So (laughs) this is what she says. The mother of Methodism. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. As soon as they were grown pretty strong, they were confined to three meals a day. At dinner, their little tables and chairs were set by ours where they would be overlooked. And they were set to eat and drink small beer as much as they would. (laughs) Small children. (laughs) So... This is something that even the Puritans, John and Charles Wesley, from like young ages engaged in. And, and also Calvin, as part of his salary, he was, he was given like 250 gallons of wine. And, and the Geneva Council thought like, hey, let's do this because this guy entertains a lot of people and has a lot of people over his house. So part of his salary is 250 gallons of wine. <laughs> like some people would be like, sweet, you yeah. know, but they recognize that and they recognize that like this isn't an evil that needs to be rejected because we could do that with so many. I mean. Again, to the drink, to, to the drinking and eating argument in gospel communities or volunteer appreciations, whatever it is, we don't remove food from the table. Right. And how many people struggle with eating disorders? Mm-hmm. And and we're like, well, we can have food, but like, man, tons of people in our culture struggle with that. But yeah. but but we're not weird about that. I think we're weird about this because the Volset Act of nineteen nineteen and the prohibition. I think that is like still impacting our culture and the church culture and there's a stigma around alcohol that is being read in and saying this is what's appropriate this is how you should respond this is what you should do this is what you shouldn't do and so there's like all of this i don't know yeah just just pressure i think still from that that is shaping the way that we view alcohol instead of letting scripture shape the way we view alcohol so i also think i'll end with this because i I love this quote from luther he says this he says do not suppose that abuses are eliminated by destroying the object which is abused. Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then prohibit and abolish women? The sun, the moon, and the stars have been worshipped. Shall we then pluck them out of the sky? See how much God has been able to accomplish through me, though I did no more than pray and preach. The word did it all. Luther's argument is our our way to deal with this stuff is through the heart. It's not through eradicating stuff because we'll just find something else to Mm -hmm. worship. If, if you don't deal with the root issues, and I would say alcohol, the same way for pornography for people, is a solution to a deeper problem. Mm-hmm. So let's deal with that. Let's not say, let's eradicate this and that's going to fix the problems of the world because the heart is still going to find something else to sinfully worship and find pleasure in. Pleasure is not the problem. It's just that we're called to find pleasure in God and in the good gifts that he's given, but that those aren't supposed to be our ultimate satisfaction. God is supposed mm-hmm. to be. And, and thank God for the gospel because... 
We find pleasure in alcohol more than we ought to. We find pleasure in the things of this world more than we ought to. We seek sex over and above Christ. Like you name it, Christ lived and walked this earth, seeking the creator more than the created creature. Mm. He sought the gift giver more than the gifts, Mm. found his ultimate pleasure in God and imputed that life to you and me. And so God doesn't see us as people that abuse alcohol. God doesn't see us as this. God sees us as people that find our ultimate pleasure in him because that's what Christ did. But that should also shape the way that we engage with the gifts God has given us. Mm -hmm. Seeing them is good, enjoying them is good, but there's also a ton of freedom. The Christians don't have to be weird about this, that they can engage this, they can drink and enjoy this good gift and, and do so for the glory of God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Matt Papa in his book, Look and Live, has uses an illustration to talk about God's glory and how we are to be, the whole premise of his book is we're transformed into the image of Christ when we behold the glory of God. And mm-hmm. so the more time we spend looking at God's glory, the more we're actually transformed. And he uses an illustration of the sun. If you think of God as the sun uh, and then the rays of the sun that actually bring warmth are his gifts. And mm-hmm. so we, we feel the warmth of the sun ray. Uh, maybe that's the gift of food or the gift of alcohol or the gift of sex. And we can worship that ray and focus on that, or we can trace it back to its source. That's good. The source of the warmth, which that's is the good. sun itself. And so I think like all of good's gifts, exactly like you're saying, alcohol is a good gift that is meant for us to follow that ray of warmth, that joy back to the source, back to the gift mm-hmm. giver and bring him glory and honor and praise. And I think we can do that. I think we can drink to the king for his glory yeah. uh, and his glory alone. And I think there's also ways to love and serve one another um, with this gift as well. So. Yeah. And and I think just maybe the better place or the better question is how much or what can I engage in? What can I do is, is how do I glorify God in the gifts he's given? And, mm-hmm. and can I eat or drink and say with a clear conscience, I'm doing so the glory of God. And I would say, man, go home. If you want this evening, spite the devil by enjoying a good beer, a good glass of wine, a good drink, mm-hmm. and, and know that that can just be a taste and a sliver of how good the gospel is that has the power to redeem and heal and reconcile. And, and so, yeah, just, I think spiting the devil through being like, you know what? It's been a crappy day. I'll do that. I'll listen to stand-up comedy on the way home to laugh and and, and go home and enjoy a good beverage. And, mm-hmm. and I think those are good gifts that we've been given permission scripturally, God's authority to enjoy. Yeah, yeah. sure. Awesome. Well, thanks, Rick. Uh, that was a super helpful conversation. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in to this episode. Hopefully this was helpful. As always, uh, if you have any questions or if you want to talk to one of us about something we said, or if you have ideas for the podcast, you can reach out to us. The email that you can contact us through is in the show notes, always wherever you get your podcast at. So thanks for listening. Uh, hope this was helpful and we'll see you next time. Thank you.